We are now in the story of Mark's gospel to about the last 18 hours of Jesus's, well, 30 hours of Jesus's pre-resurrection life. It's amazing to think about. We have spent, oh, about 13 and a half chapters getting through about 33 years of Jesus's life. And now we're going to spend about two and a half chapters dealing with the very last hours of Jesus's earthly life. And as we are now at the twilight of Jesus's life, we can see the darkness forming around him. Where Calvin Todd began reading for us this morning as we just continue working through Mark's gospel together, Verse 10 says, And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. You get a signal of the evil that was awaiting Jesus. That one of the twelve, his closest friends, the ones he had given himself to, to minister to them, to teach them, to bring them into the things of God, one of those twelve was a traitor. And in his treachery, he was going to go to the chief priests and he was going to show them where they could capture Jesus secretly, arrest him privately. The darkness is surrounding him. You see the chief priests, you see the religious leaders of his day plotting that they might put an innocent man to death. Jesus, the avatar, the prime example of one falsely arrested, falsely imprisoned, falsely killed at the hands of a corrupt government, a corrupt religious system. The darkness is forming around him. We see the tempest that is about to storm over his head. And yet at the same time, we see Jesus as the king who is confidently walking into it without any fear. Who, in fact, asserts that he has control over it. I can imagine this. The religious elite of Jesus' day are set against him to kill him. Judas Iscariot, his own disciple, is plotting against him to betray him and put him to death. And in the middle of it, Jesus stands like a rock saying, you can't do anything to me that I'm not in control of already. I want you to listen to these words that his disciples said after he died and was resurrected, as they put these pieces together and the Holy Spirit brought back their memories of what Jesus had said to them and what he had done in the hours before his death. Listen to what Peter says in Acts chapter 2 as he's preaching to the people who had just shouted, crucify him, crucify him. He said this, of Jesus, him being delivered by the determinate or the settled counsel and foreknowledge of God. Why did Jesus die? Because God ordained it. Because God chose it. Because God delivered him to die. Hmm. He says, you have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. You see those two things together? 
as the darkness envelops around Jesus, what the reaction of the gospel writers is, God delivered Jesus to die. And why did he die? Because by your wicked hands, you took him and crucified an innocent man. You murdered him. God's plan and man's plotting are not in somehow contradictory to one another. In fact, the Bible record simply says they're both true. Man was plotting and seeking to do evil against an innocent man, Jesus, and they murdered him. And at the same time, God had his purpose being fulfilled the entire time. By the way, don't let people make, the, make two things that are true biblically in conflict with each other. God's sovereignty, that God rules, that God is the one ultimately who is the reason you are saved. He chose you to be saved. That's true biblically. And also, the free will of man that makes him guilty when he says no and rejects the salvation of God. Don't make those two things in conflict with each other. Just like it is here in the death of Jesus, it's true in the salvation of souls. Here is man's plotting going right hand in hand with God's plan the entire time. Now you say, well, why do we start there? I start there because we're likely otherwise to be set adrift when we get to verse 12. Now, haven't we been noticing so far that because we're not living in first century Judea, we have a hard time sometimes coming in to the context of what these stories are telling us. A, a Jew of Jesus' day would have read these stories and say, oh, I, I know exactly what's going on here. I get it. Well, we're 21st century Americans. This is 2,000 years removed from us from a different kind of context, from a different kind of ethnic system, from a different kind of cultural system, from a different kind of religious system. And we hear things like, verse 12, and the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover, and we say, what does that mean? They would have known exactly what that meant. Not only that, this story is about the disciples telling Jesus, hey Jesus, where are we going to go and prepare so that you're going to eat the Passover? Well, what's the Passover? What are they preparing for? But it gets even more mysterious. Jesus says to them in verse 13, go into the city and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. Well, that's kind of weird, isn't it? Why didn't he just say, go talk to Steve? Well, it gets even more weird. Look at this. And wheresoever he shall go in, wherever, whatever house he enters into, say to the good men or, or the, 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 the master of the house, the master says, where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? Why didn't Jesus just say, go to Straight Street and go to the yellow house on Straight Street and talk to Bob and say, Bob, Jesus said, here's where I'm going to eat the Passover. Why this cloak and dagger stuff? Go see the guy with the pitcher of water. Wherever he goes, follow him, then enter into the house to say to the guy of the house, talk to him, and he'll prepare, and that's where you make ready. You see, if we don't understand what's going on here, and if we don't understand the, the harmony between man's plotting and God's planning the whole time, we're not going to miss it. We're, we're not going to get it. We're just going to be totally lost on us. 
but in reality when we understand those things. We're going to see that what these several verses are about is exactly that. Man plotting against Jesus to murder him unjustly. And Jesus saying, "Uh uh-uh, I'm in control here. It's going to go on God's timetable and at God's plan. The title of the message this morning is The Passover Prepared. The Passover Prepared. We're going to talk about Jesus celebrating the Passover with his friends before he died. What is the Passover? What is this reaching back to? And hopefully, as we continue to move through this passage, we're going to answer the question, why did Jesus tell them to do it this way? Why all this cloak and dagger stuff? This anonymous person they're meeting in the city. What's really going on here? And I hope by the end of the day, we'll be able to see that this Passover was being prepared in two ways. One, the Passover festival, the Passover feast for Jesus as an observant Jew to follow. And a second Passover being prepared, Jesus, the Lamb of God, being ready to be slain. Let's talk first of all, the first point this morning is I'm going to simply call it the Passover. The Passover. And I look around and I don't see many observant Jews in our audience today. So I don't know how many of you have ever participated in a Passover or a Seder feast before. And I actually just want to ask, by context, how many of you have ever participated in a Passover supper before? Okay, look, I actually see a number of hands. That's very interesting. You've you've participated in a Passover feast, so some of you are going to know this, or you're going to understand generally where it comes from. Some of you are going to say, it sounds like you're speaking Greek to me, so you're going to have to fill me in on this, and that's okay. We're going to do that. What was the Passover? Well, the Passover was, first of all, a national celebration. A national celebration. It was a national holiday. Now, we have those. We have the 4th of July. The 4th of July is our national celebration of independence. And we take the day off. And we do other things for many of us that are celebrating, at least in American national holiday. Now, there are other celebrations as well. There are celebrations of culture. Every, can you imagine all the cultures that are represented here in a diverse city like Minneapolis and all the different ethnic or religious other kinds of celebration that might happen? This was the fundamental Jewish celebration. And this was something that made it very, very proud to be a Jew. In Jesus' day. And I'm relying on a wonderful secondary source. Some of you may have consulted it before. A man named Alfred Edersheim, a 19th century writer, was a devout Jew. He was raised in a very uh, uh, well, uh, affluent Jewish household. He was trained in Hebrew. He was trained in Torah and in the Jewish religious system. And he converted to Christianity. And he wrote a very influential book called The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah. And I was really helped by this and other sources in in learning more about what the Passover would have looked like in Jesus' day. Listen to what Edersheim writes. He said, everyone in Israel was thinking about the feast, the Passover feast. For the previous month, it had been the subject of discussion in the academies. And for the last two Sabbaths at least, 
that of discourse in the synagogues. When they went to church, the synagogues in that time, for at least the last two weeks, they had been talking about this Passover. Everyone was going to Jerusalem or had those near and dear to them there, or at least watched the festive processions to the metropolis of Judaism. It was a gathering of universal Israel, that of the memorial of the birth night of the nation and of its exodus, when friends from afar would meet and new friends be made, when offerings long due would be brought and purification long needed to be obtained and all worship in that grand and glorious temple with its gorgeous ritual. National and religious feelings were alike stirred in what reached far back to the first and pointed far forward to the final deliverance. Edersheim says, on that day, a Jew might well glory in being a Jew. Again, I just imagine these national festivals, the fireworks at the 4th of July in France, Bastille Day. Everyone is happy. Everyone is celebrating. Families are getting together. This was the holiday of the nation. And in fact, you've heard of Muslims going to Mecca for a, a, a visit. They try to make at least once. This would have been like the, the Jewish Mecca. People from all over Israel would travel to Jerusalem and, and, and they would sing psalms as they ascended up to the city together. In fact, in these Passover feasts that were happening at Jerusalem, there was actually a, a minimum of 10 people to a feast. You had to meet with at least 10 other, but sometimes there were Josephus records, many of them would have feasts of up to 20 guests. So think large, fairly large gatherings, and they would have a dinner together, what we would call today the Seder. Now, you need to understand a little bit about what Jerusalem would have been transformed into in Jesus' day. There are estimates, the modern estimates, I would say, was, would that around Jesus' time, the Passover would mean there were between, say, 150,000 and 500,000 people in the old city of Jerusalem. Now, you need to understand how significant this is. Some of you went to the state fair. You know how packed the state fair gets. Do you know how big the biggest day of the state fair was this year? 200,000 people. 200,000 people were at the state fair in what feels like a very small area, right? I want you to imagine this. This kind of blew my mind. I want you to imagine the busiest day of the state fair when you can barely walk or turn. And I want you to imagine at least that many or more in the city of Jerusalem. You say, well, what does that matter? You know, I looked up the, the, the geographic area of the state fair. Do you know that area is bigger than the old city of Jerusalem? the walls of the old city of Jerusalem. I want you to imagine Jerusalem packed like the state fair. Now you've got an idea. Everyone ready to celebrate. Everyone whether ready to meet with family and gather. This was the national celebration for the Jewish people. But it was more than that. It was the national celebration because it was a religious commemoration. It was a religious memorial. What is the Passover all about? Now, if you're the type who likes to turn back in your Bible, you can turn to Exodus 12. If you're the type who just likes to listen, I'll read it for you. But listen to the first provision of the Passover. This was God's direction to his people. In Exodus chapter 12, God's people, the people of the Jews, are in slavery. 
They are slaves in a foreign land, the land of Egypt. The land of Egypt has been mistreating them, not just in the fact of slavery, but has been treating them harshly, has been beating them, has been ordering their children to be killed, to be murdered. I mean, this is absolute subjection and grief and pain for the people of God in the land of Egypt. And God has been bringing about plagues, judgments on the people of Egypt to say, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no, I will not. And so God progressively brings these judgments upon Egypt to bring them to the point of surrender and say, fine, God, we'll let your people go. And before the very last of those judgments, the very last of those judgments was that God would, as a matter of judgment, end the lives of the firstborn of each house in the land of, Israel, of, of Egypt. An absolutely sobering judgment. I mean, you can imagine the pain and the grief that would have accompanied those houses throughout the land of Egypt who lost their firstborn son. God said, this is my judgment for refusing to allow my people to go from their slavery. Listen to what God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 12. He said, speak unto all the congregation of Israel, saying, in the tenth day of this month, the month Nisan, the first month of the religious Jewish calendar, this month they shall take to them every man a lamb, a young sheep, According to the house of their fathers, a lamb for an house. And if the household be too little for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next unto his house take it according to the number of the souls. So if you only have a house of two or three and a lamb will be too big for you, well then join with the next door neighbor and you'll have a, you'll have a group celebration. Every man according to his eating shall make your count for the lamb. Now listen to this. Your lamb shall be without blemish. You weren't going to sacrifice a lamb that was disabled, a lamb that was diseased. Oh, well, this one's going to die anyway. Let's take that one for this. No, it was to be a perfect lamb, a lamb of value. And in this perfect lamb, a male of the first year, ye shall take it out from the sheep or from the goats, and ye shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month, the month Nisan, the 14th day of Nisan. Now listen to this. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it in the evening. So every household or two households would take a lamb and kill this, this spotless lamb. And what would they do with it? And they shall take of the blood and strike it on the two side posts and on the upper door posts of the houses. So every house would take the blood of the lamb and they would put it on the side posts and on the front door post of the house. You say, for whatever reason. And they shall eat the flesh, the lamb. They'll eat the lamb from the blood that was put on. They'll eat the meat in that night, roast with fire, so cooked over fire, and unleavened bread, bread that did not rise, had no leaven in it, so it was more like a cracker. That would be like we're going to eat here in our Lord's Supper in a little bit, uh, an unleavened cracker. And now what happens? He says, eat not of it raw, so you're not going to eat it raw, nor sod it at all with water. You're not going to boil it. You're not going to cook it by boiling it, and you're not going to eat it raw. It's going to be over fire 
roast with fire, his head with his legs, and with the pertinence or the inner organs thereof. And ye shall let nothing of it remain until the morning. And that which remaineth of it until the morning, ye shall burn with fire. The whole lamb is going to be consumed, either by eating it or by burning it. And thus shall ye eat it with your loins girded, so your clothes on, your shoes on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Why? That's the picture. You're ready to go. You're ready to eat it and go right out the door. Why? Ye shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover, for I will pass through the land of Egypt this night and will smite all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and against all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. You see what God's saying? God is saying, when I see the blood of the sacrificed lamb on your doorposts, I will not execute judgment against your firstborn. I will pass over. You see that? That's why it is called the Passover. You, you remember the hymn we just sang before the message, when I see the blood, I will pass over you? That's the idea. When I see the blood of that sacrificed lamb that stands in the place of the firstborn against whom I was going to execute my judgment against the land of Egypt, I will pass over, I will spare that firstborn, I will go because a sacrifice has been made. Do you see the picture? This is the celebration. And every year in Nisan, on the 14th, and then going over to the 15th day of that month, the people of Israel, God's people, would gather together with their family, and they would kill a lamb just like it happened, happened a thousand years before, more than a thousand years before, in Exodus chapter 12. They would spread that blood against the door, they would eat it, and they would remember this is the night when God executed judgment against our enemies so that we could go out free from slavery. It was a national celebration because it was a religious commemoration. It was the memorial of what God had done. But here's the exciting thing that you can't miss. You can't miss that this Passover third was a divine completion. You can't miss, as we, as we work through these last couple chapters of the Gospel of Mark together, what all of history has been driving toward is that the original Passover in Exodus chapter 12 was only a picture. It was only a foreshadowing. Like if you were in a movie and you saw something happen and you wait till the end of the movie and you say, oh, that's what that picture was about all the way. It was foreshadowing something that would happen in the future. That's here in Exodus chapter 12. Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He was that spotless lamb. He was that lamb that was killed, that was sacrificed. His blood was applied as a sacrifice so that the firstborn, us would not receive the judgment of God, but would receive the salvation of God. God's judgment would pass over us, and we would go free from the slavery of sin. This was always pointing forward to what Jesus would be doing on the cross. This was prefigured, if you remember in your Bibles, in the story of Isaac. And the lamb, right, as uh, Isaac says, going up that mountain, he says to his father Abraham, where's the lamb? Where's the lamb for the sacrifice? And, and Abraham says, God will provide. God will provide a lamb. He did provide a lamb in, in, in the person of Jesus Christ. 
This is these wonderful pictures that we see of the sacrifice that Jesus was for us. This is the Passover. And I want to move secondly to what I'm going to call the Passover plot. So here you have in verse 12, the first day of unleavened bread when they killed the Passover. So all of this national celebration, religious commemoration is being prepared. Jerusalem is, is thronging with pilgrims, with guests from all over the country, ready to celebrate the Passover together. And Jesus is going into Jerusalem to celebrate it with his disciples. But what's also going on? A plot. Start with the first verse of chapter 14. If you look back in your Bibles to the first verse of chapter 14, Mark says, After two days was the feast of the Passover and of unleavened bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by craft, by trickery, secretly, and put him to death. What these religious leaders had decided was that Jesus was a nuisance. He was bringing about a kind of transformation religiously that they said, no, 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 we don't like this. We're the guardians. We're the gatekeepers. We're the central ones in our religion. We're not having this, this upstart, this guy coming from out of nowhere and taking over our position and taking over our power and taking over our prestige. No, thank you. And so they decided that he would be put to death. Their priority was, we want him dead. Well, what happens next? Verse 2 says, But they said, Not on the feast day, lest there be an uproar of the people. Again, I want you to imagine those hundreds of thousands of people uh, crowding Jerusalem like at the Minnesota State Fair. And I want you to imagine if, G if Jesus had been there publicly teaching and they'd gone and arrested him publicly. This guy that had been performing miracles. People had been teaching and, and preaching the kingdom of God. Can you imagine what these people might have done? There might have been a riot. There might have been an absolute uproar. No, don't you dare. So, so their priority was they wanted him dead, but their strategy was it needs to be privately. It needs to be secretly so no one knows. By the way, have you noticed that in Putin's Russia, a lot of his enemies randomly jump off tall buildings? Have you noticed? It's very strange, isn't it? It is very strange that the people who have opposed him suddenly it was reported that they fell to their death from an apartment window. Strange how that happens. You remember that guy, General Prigozhin, who, who, who had that mutiny against Putin recently in Russia? Did you see that his airplane fell from the sky? It's just amazing how that happens, isn't it? But this is the idea. They, they don't want to arrest him in the open town square when people might riot. It's got to happen secretly. It's got to happen privately. Whoops, where'd Jesus go? We don't know. He disappeared. That was their idea. So, so, so think about then what Judas offered them in his treachery. Chapter 14, look ahead to verse 10. And Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went unto the chief priests to betray him unto them. And when they heard it, they were glad. Why? Because he was going to show them where he was secretly so they could arrest him. He was their mole. He was their informant. Hey, tomorrow night, Jesus is going to be in this house. Go get him there. There won't be any crowds around. You get it? That's the idea. They were glad. And promised to give him money. Betraying him for money. And he sought, Judas sought, how he might conveniently betray him. 
You know what he's saying is? From that moment, Judas was absolutely motivated to find where Jesus would be privately so they could arrest him without a whisper and put him to death. Okay, you've got the Passover, a national celebration, a religious commemoration, a divine completion. Jesus was going to keep that Passover. In fact, he said in Luke chapter 22, he says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you. He was earnestly seeking to have this last supper with his disciples. Why? Because he wanted that time with them as an observant Jew fulfilling the law. Because he was going to institute the Lord's Supper that we're going to take today. He was absolutely set on instituting that last supper for us, for you and for me to participate in. And also, because he was going to be the Passover lamb himself, going directly at God's timing. He had to keep that Passover. And now here's Judas plotting secretly, where can I get Jesus to get arrested privately where there's not going to be a big scene? And that leads us directly to what I'm going to call third, our third point, the Passover preparation. The Passover preparation. This is wonderful. When you realize that this story comes in that context, it all starts to make sense. And I just, again, I want you to step back into this idea here. I'm just going to read these few verses, and I'm going to ask you to think about how weird it sounds. If you don't know anything about the context, about how strange it sounds. And he sends forth. So the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, where are you going to eat the Passover tonight? And here's what he says. And he sends forth two of his disciples and saith unto them, Go ye into the city, and there shall meet you a man bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him. And wheresoever he shall go in, say ye to the good men, or, or to, the, to the head of the house, the master saith, Where is the guest chamber where I, sh where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and prepared, there make ready for us. And his disciples went forth and came into the city and found, as he had said unto them, and they made ready the Passover. Doesn't that sound so strange? But in reality, it's not. Man's plot was to find a secret place where Jesus was going to be and where he could be arrested. You think Judas wasn't looking for where Jesus was going to be on Passover night to arrest him in a private upper room and have him taken away? We know he was looking. Why? Because right after the Passover dinner, where did he go? he went out and went straight to the chief priests and took him to the Garden of Gethsemane where he would be arrested privately in the cover of darkness. He was looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus secretly. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus says, you're not going to interrupt my Passover dinner. You're not going to arrest me in that upper room. And so what does he say to Peter and John, two of his disciples? Luke tells us it was Peter and John. He doesn't say to them, Go to Straight Street to Bob's house and get there. That's where we're going to do the Passover. Why? Because what do you think Judas would have done? Hey, go to Bob's house tonight, chief priest. You'll arrest him there. You'll interrupt his Passover dinner. You'll take him secretly and quietly. No, Jesus said, I want to have this Passover dinner. I want to institute the Lord's Supper. That's not my timeline. Judas, that might be your timeline, but that's not my timeline. And so what does he say? He says to Peter and John, go into the city and you're going to see a man with a pitcher of water meeting you. He's going to meet you. 
You say, well, think about going to the state fair. Hey, the guy with the yellow hat, he'll meet you there. What yellow hat? What are you talking about? No. Why was, it a, a, why, why was it about a man with a pitcher of water? Because the men in Jesus' day weren't the ones carrying the pitchers of water. That was what the women were carrying around. That was part of their idea. The men were carrying around the wineskins. So the fact that Jesus said it's the guy carrying the pitcher of water that you're going to meet in a town filled like the Minnesota State Fair, they would have said, oh, there's the guy. He just met us. All right, we're following him. And they follow right behind him, and he leads to a house. Jesus didn't tell him where the house was. Why? Because Judas was listening. Right? He was listening. And so he just said, I'm going to take you on this little path, and you're going to get exactly to what I think Jesus had already prepared. Some people believe that this was just Jesus' miraculous foreknowledge. I don't. I think Jesus prepared this ahead of time, and he knew where they were going, and he knew what the upper room was going to be, and it was the upper room of one of his other disciples that had followed him. He'd already prepared it. But I believe, again, you may disagree, I believe that Jesus did this so that he knew certainly that he would not be arrested that night, and Judas would not know where they were going. What did ended up happening? Well, look at verse 17. And in the evening he cometh with the twelve. Judas goes, they walk straight to that house. Judas did not know where they were going. I just love this. I love that on the one hand, here's Judas plotting to betray him. And here's Jesus saying, it's going to happen on my time frame. It's going to happen on my timeline and not yours. In fact, we'll, we may have the opportunity to look into this more. There are many who believe that Jesus was killed. He was crucified the next day on exactly the time when a great number of Passover lambs were being slaughtered in the temple as the Lamb of God slain for the sins of the world. Whether that's true as a historical matter or not, what's clear is that this was operating on God's plan, on God's purpose, and not on man's. Can I just apply this to us for just one minute? If you and I could just keep this one phrase in our mind, I think it would really help us. Man plots, God rules. If we could just keep those two thoughts together, man plots, God rules. Do you know how much fear and anxiety it would save you from? We have a political world today in which both sides are convinced that the other one is plotting to end America as we know it. And whatever political side of the aisle, you can get so anxious, you can get so worked up, so angry. Remember, man plots. Who rules? God rules. He's the one who's in control of what we do. In your daily life, as you take various issues, as, as things, burdens come across your life, as people seek to harm you or to do other things against you. Remember, God, man plots, God rules. God rules. Judas the betrayer could not ultimately take over God's plan for Jesus and his sacrifice. But there's one more thing. There's one more thing about this preparation. Notice here that when this verse says in verse number 16, the disciples went forth and came into the city and found as he had said unto them. What did they find? An upper room furnished and prepared. The table already set. Perhaps the couches already pulled around the table for this. But there was one thing that probably had not yet fully been prepared. 
the lamb, the lamb. That's why I think it says here that John and Peter, in verse 16, they made ready the Passover. And I just want you to think about this for one moment. They made ready the Passover. What would that have required? It would have required them going to the temple with a lamb that had been prepared, a lamb without blemish, a lamb without spot, a perfect lamb. Peter and John would have taken that to the temple. And now I'm going to go back to Edersheim to read for you what would have happened. A threefold blast from the priest's trumpets intimated that the lambs were being slain. They were being killed. This each Israelite did for himself. He goes on to say, Peter and John had slain the lamb. Can you imagine Peter and John taking that perfect lamb, killing it themselves in the temple? Here's what Edersheim says. In two rows, the officiating priest stood up, stood up to the great altar of burnt offering. As one caught up the blood from the dying lamb in a golden bowl, he handed it to his colleague, receiving in return an empty bowl. And so the blood was passed on to the great altar where it was jerked in one jet at the base of the altar. That the, the, the blood of that lamb poured at the base of the altar, the holy altar itself. While this was going on, the Hallel, the collection of psalms, was being chanted by the Levites. Can you just imagine Peter and John participating in this preparation of the Passover, killing the lamb themselves, seeing its blood collected, poured at the base of the altar? And then can you remember what they would have thought when Jesus was crucified his blood was shed. Can you imagine as they saw, uh, sat back to write the epistles that they're known for today, to reflect on the fact that as they killed that Passover lamb, as a commemoration of that great deliverance of God for his people from slavery in Egypt, how Jesus, their Passover lamb, had been killed for them. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, Purge out therefore the old leaven, that ye may be a new lump, as ye are unleavened. For even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. That must have resonated with John. If you read John's gospel, the one who killed this lamb, undoubtedly, the one who understood what Jesus was doing for them, his gospel is centered around this theme of the Lamb of God who is slain for the sins of the world. He is the one who records heaven being opened in the book of Revelation and all of heaven praising Jesus. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain who has redeemed us to God by his blood. And then imagine Peter sitting down to write the book of 1 Peter chapter 1 and writing these words, For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, he says, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Like that lamb on that last Passover that I killed my Savior was sacrificed for me. And friend, now we're at the heart of what the gospel teaches. It teaches that you and I are sinners 
who by our nature stand under the judgment of a righteous God who looks at our rebellion, who looks at our sin, and must execute his judgment upon it. But that Jesus came from heaven to earth as a sinless, spotless human being to stand in our place as the Lamb of God that when he died on that cross, yes, he was murdered at the hands of wicked men, and equally true, he was delivered as the sacrifice of God. His blood was shed. And when that blood, if you will, in this picture, is applied to your doorposts, when his blood is applied by your faith to your life, the judgment of God will pass over you. You will not be for eternally in hell, but you will be saved. You will be delivered eternally by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Over the next several weeks, friends, we're going to see how Jesus applied this Passover picture to himself. But as we close this morning, I simply want to ask you two questions. One, as you sit here this morning, do you know that the blood of Jesus has been applied to you? Is his sacrifice as the Passover lamb your sacrifice so that the judgment of God will not fall on you, but you have been freed, you have been delivered, you have been saved? And second, I ask you, if you have not been, if you have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your sacrifice, as your Passover lamb, won't you today, won't today be the day that you will kneel before Jesus and accept him as your substitute, as your Passover lamb, so that your sins may be forgiven and you may live in freedom with the God who made you.